Just let your feelings roll on by Don't wear fear Or nobody will know you're there This is Rumble with Michael Moore And I'm Michael Moore Welcome everyone uh, to today's episode Sean Penn, the great Sean Penn Will be joining me in just a few minutes I'm really looking forward to this conversation with him at this time in our lives. (laughs) Before we uh, talk to Sean, just a couple of of things here. First of all, as you know, we are having on Friday night of this week, September 10th, a special worldwide screening of my film from 2004, Fahrenheit 9-11. This is going to be streaming uh, live to those who follow me here on uh, Substack and who listen to my podcast, all of you get to watch this movie for free Friday night. It's at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific. If you're listening to this in Europe, my apologies uh, because it's not going to air until 2 or 3 in the morning. So uh, we'll figure that out because you've got to get in on, on this. I, I so want you to be part of this. So let me figure that out here by the time we're done tonight, just in case a few of you are up and and listening, but your friends had to go to bed. And for those of you who are in Australia, New Zealand, uh, Japan, Korea, over in that part of the world called Asia, uh, the movie will actually be around 11 in the morning, I think, uh, uh, your time. So uh, if you're not at work, you'll be able to participate. But for those of you in the United States, I'm really looking forward to showing this. Now, I'm I'm recording this now, and this will be airing my podcast here on uh, Thursday. So we're talking about tomorrow. If you're hearing this after Friday, uh, if you're listening on Saturday or Sunday or whatever, just check back with me. But if you're listening to this now, as we've just put this up here on Thursday, you're listening on Thursday and Friday, uh, tune in at 9 p.m. here on michaelmore.com, on my Substack here, it's all free, and um, I'd love to have you do this. It's, it's a thing I, I've wanted to do for some time, actually, to have like a, a movie night once a month where I will invite you, uh, those of you who follow me here and those of you who are, uh, subscribe uh, to me on to my uh, Substack, to join me and watch a movie together. I'm going to say once a month or so. And then I'll see if I can get the director or some actors or depending on the kind of film it is, to join us afterwards. Tomorrow's film, or Friday's film, I should say Friday the 10th, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11, because it's my film, I will be there. So I will host it and I will uh, take questions at the end and we'll have a couple of surprise guests uh, who are in the movie joining me. So that's all tomorrow, Friday, September 10th, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And I... Would love to watch this movie. I haven't watched it in many, many years, so I'd love to watch it with you and then talk about it uh, because I think it's very relevant to what we're going through uh, right now. So please join me for that uh, special uh, screening of Fahrenheit 9-11 on the eve of the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. So before we bring on uh, Sean Penn, uh, I just want to thank our underwriter, one of our underwriters for today's episode, and that is Audible. Uh, 
leading provider of spoken word entertainment, as they call it. But we're really talking about, well, it's, they used to be just audiobooks. Now there's all kinds of things that are recorded that focuses and delivers it to just via audio. Uh, so yes, they have a huge selection of audiobooks, but also original entertainment, thousands of binge-worthy podcasts. And they even carry me, Rumble with Michael Moore. So pretty cool. I love audiobooks. Maybe I'll have a chance to talk to Sean about one of my favorite audiobooks of all time, which is Bob Dylan's autobiography called Chronicles. But Dylan didn't read the, the audiobook. It was Sean Penn. And it's one of the great, absolute great reads of all time if you love uh, audiobooks. And if you don't, you should get into it because it's a great way uh, to pass the time. So for listeners of my podcast, Rumble, uh, you get to try uh, Audible for free for 30 days. So go to audible.com slash rumble. Don't forget the slash rumble. Or you can text the word rumble to 500-500 on your phone. 500-500. That's audible.com slash rumble or text rumble to the number 500-500 and you'll get a free 30-day trial of Audible. All right, so here we go. My guest today is Sean Penn, one of the greatest actors of our time. He's won the Academy Award for Best Actor twice, once for his portrayal of California's first openly gay elected official, Harvey Milk, and also playing Jimmy Markham in the Clint Eastwood film, Mystic River. And that was back in uh, 2004. Of course, Sean has been in so many films that I and uh, the rest of you, I'm sure, love, starting with uh, Fast Times at, at Ridgemont High, and then going on to working with all the great directors, Dennis Hopper in the film Colors, uh, Brian De Palma with Casualties of War and Carlito's Way, The Thin Red Line with Terrence Malick, uh, Sidney Pollock's uh, The Interpreter, and on and on and on. Sean is also a talented director, dating back to his well-regarded 1992 film, The Indian Runner, which he dedicated to both John Cassavetes and Hal Ashby, two great uh, directors. He's now currently, as a film out, I saw it this week, it's called Flag Day. It is a film that stars Sean, but if you don't mind me saying, the main star of the film is your incredible daughter, Dylan, who gives such an amazing performance. The film is called Flag Day, and it's a beautiful work of art. I don't want to take anything away from Sean, because when we talk about the film, I, I want to talk also about his role in this, in this very powerful movie. In addition to Sean's work in film, he is also a dedicated and devoted citizen and humanitarian. He's not the guy uh, that shows up for the big photo op with a large check. He's the guy that shows up to literally do the work, get his hands dirty, and take risks fighting for others, fighting for their survival. And, of course, I love him for that. Uh, he's founded a nonprofit group called CORE, which stands for 
community organized relief effort. He did that in uh, 2010 after the devastating earthquake there that in Haiti that took a couple of hundred thousand lives. And since then, Sean and CORE show up where people are in serious, serious, desperate need. The Flint water crisis, you know, you name it, he's there on the Navajo Nation reservation. CORE has distributed now across this country 1.7 million vaccines uh, in uh, just since uh, January and February. It's amazing work. I'm really happy to have him as part of our launch month here uh, with our Substack. And Sean, I'm just really happy. I'd like to welcome you to Rumble, my friend, uh, Sean Penn. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. You and I were communicating earlier this week and just kind of trying to trying to talk about the um, the level of madness that's going on these days and what we're up against. I mean, share with me and the people listening how you sort of describe and define the moment we're in, just right from your own heart. I, I would love to hear how you would put everything that's going on right now into some sort of crazy context. What I would say is that these institutions that we have so relied on for out throughout our lifetimes and certainly um, a couple of hundred years before that um, are extraordinary institutions of aspiration that they have not followed through on behalf of all Americans yet uh, is, is something we have to understand clearly. That doesn't diminish the aspiration of them. Where I feel we are now is I wake up and I wonder, is it time to pack the court? Is it time to risk an institution before all the institutions crumble? Because I think there are fissures in all of them now, especially as reflected by January 6th, um, by the incredible division, the identity politics, the culture war politics, the, the, the kind of general madness that I, I describe as radical libertarianism that has completely forgotten that this, this aspiration that created these institutions is one that, is, that was cured with, in, in, with independence that is interdependently based. Even to have an election, are we interdependent to get out there and vote, all sides, all parties, uh, to make this thing work? And so now we look, for example, at what's happening in, you know, we, we, this country, for all intents and purposes, could have been largely out of this pandemic by now. Yes, we would have been dealing with distributing vaccines through the world. We would have had some pockets of cases. But this kind of general madness and this big, um, you know, kind of lie that is the, the, the constant um, normalization of deceit is, uh, you know, we, I mean, Al-Qaeda means the base, right? And we keep hearing about the base here. The parallels go on. And now you've got these white nationalist groups aligning themselves with, you know, or, 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 or um, celebrating the Taliban. 
uh, where have we come in the 20 years since 9-11? And I do, I do wonder if it shouldn't be a kind of Hail Mary pass, uh, pack the court, fix this situation for women uh, with these, this abortion stuff that's, that's, that's Roe Wade. Uh, stuff that's going on and and and, and the election uh, suppression. First of all, I don't I don't think of it as packing the court, because first of all, our Supreme Court has had numerous numbers of people that made up the court in all these years, and the number nine maybe has been that way for maybe a hundred years at this point. I wish Democrats would uh, would push for this. I think that. It's a good thing to do. I'm not talking about doubling it, but, you know, add four. Add four members to the court. See, here's the thing I can't stand about this, Sean, and, and the abortion thing in Texas really brought this to the forefront. We have gender apartheid in this country. The majority gender uh, doesn't have the say. The majority gender is being told by a majority of men on the, on the two-thirds of the court are men. 75% of Congress are men, and they're being told by men that we have a, we're going to decide what you can do with your reproductive organs. At that point, you have to call, you have to say, okay, hang on, all bets are off, folks, because that's just wrong. Yeah, and you know, as you said, you wouldn't call it packing the court. I wouldn't call people who don't support women making their own choice men. Wow. Yes. Well, yes. And men have an even have a, have a role in this that if we don't speak out, if we don't stop this, if we don't fix this, then that shame is on us. Nobody tells you, you or I what we can do with our lives. <laughs> Whether you and I are not uh in a handmaid's tale situation where we are uh forced to uh, make women pregnant, forced a forced the forced birth that is now upon women in Texas. You are forced to give birth. You are birth slaves. We will decide. You will not decide. This is so mind-boggling, Sean. The inhumanity of it, and the rage. I would hope that we all feel over this. It's, I think there should be, you know, every, people like to, in politics and on the street, say, you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. But that's not really the history. We, when we don't prioritize, we, we get stuck in, in, in all of the various kind of culture wars and cannibalism on each other. Uh, there isn't time to focus clearly on these existential issues for w women in Texas, uh, you know, one thing that this, I, just because we're talking about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was a direct connection in, in all of the major studies that were reported at the time of the generation that followed Roe v. Wade. And what happened was that crime went significant, violent crime went significantly down because yeah. you had a greater population of wanted children and a lesser population of unwanted children. Uh, this, so you, you, one takes these positions without looking at the result on the other end of the fork, that 
you know, we just we just are so involved in our own righteous positions that we're not looking 10 steps ahead to how those are really going to affect our children's lives. You know, we 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 talk about education a lot. Um, we don't talk enough about service. And I think that one of the things I missed as a young man coming out of high school was a demand for my service, mandatory service. And I feel that if, you, you know, in the same way that when the Me Too movement happened, one kind of, I kind of felt that, look, the, the, way, the place to go on this is eight-year-old boys in school. Get in early and let her, everybody can argue for the next decade and a half and, you know, eat each other alive or, or justifiably take each other to court or prosecute cases and all of that stuff. But, but if it's me, I'm just thinking, how do, you, how do we actually change this, this, the way that we relate to each other? You, that, that's not going to be you and me. That's going to be what we might be able to share with young children developing that as a, a, as a culture. And I think that when people engage in service at a young age that never leaves their DNA, they become important because they see that they make it, that they are able to make change, that they are able to better their life, whether that service is in the military or that service is with the elderly or forestry or any number of things facing us today. Uh, you know, you, you have young people in this country take a year or two to devote themselves to those things. That will never leave them. And they are no longer impotent. And it is, it's the impotent that are always looking to just break things up for the sake of breaking them up. Or they're passive. And we need uh, potency and not impotency if we're going to drive this thing forward. Well, I think that's actually a, a, an incredible idea. And, you know, I've heard people talk about this over the years, but it never kind of comes to fruition. Uh, but if we made this a value of our society and, and that when you become an adult at 18, you don't necessarily have to be drafted to go to the military, but all those things you mentioned, all the work that could be done with climate and, and the environment, the water situation isn't just in Flint. It's, it's so many places. Um, the the income inequality, all of this stuff that uh, if I think this is a great idea. And frankly, um, you said something a few minutes before that about you're not you're not a man if you're trying to dictate to women, if you're trying to tell women what they can or can't do, then whatever you are, that isn't what should define what a man is. And the rest of us men uh, are repulsed by a governor who yesterday when he signed that bill in Texas and a reporter said, but what about women who are raped? This, this law says they can't have an abortion. Incest, they can't have an abortion, uh, a, a medical issue. And he, he said, well, solution to that is I'll just get rid of rape. And he actually said that. But I think, you know, you brought up this idea of service uh, that I think all of us should be doing, regardless of our age. But what you can, can I talk to you about what you've started here this, in this last decade with CORE? Because it's, I think, such a powerful thing. And, um, you know, I 
when when Katrina happened, we were working on our next film, and I and I shut it down there the the, the day of Katrina, and I said we need to get down there and we need to help, and I'm gonna put I'm gonna go on my website and I'm gonna my social media followers there weren't that many back then, but I uh, I, I asked people to donate money, uh, and we had I think about two million dollars to my website. And we had, I don't know, half a dozen to a dozen semi-trucks that we packed with everything that people needed in Louisiana, in New Orleans. So everybody went down there and we you know, created our own little camp and, and trying to help out. And then one day, we, there's <laughs> the guy in the boat. It was you. You were there. If I remember correctly, you were kind of pulling this rowboat and you were literally pulling people out of, out of the water, out of the places where they were in, in siege. And there you were doing that. Well, you know what? Here's an interesting thing about this, and it applies today. And, and I think it's important for people to know, and, and, and you've seen this, and, and so many of the people that have worked in those circumstances, be they friends and neighbors, from within the communities or those of us that come in and try to reach out from outside. Um, these, these natural disaster situations, um, this goes back to the service thing because, you know, there, there will never be enough government to take care of these things on their own. And I think that, you know, organizations, NGOs and, and governmental organizations really should be making a greater effort as the citizens should be to meet them halfway on the information campaigns that give you the basic clarity, that give Americans the basic clarity of what government can do and what they can't do. One of the things that so surprised me during Katrina, I had put off going for a couple of days after the uh, hurricane had hit because I'm watching the news and I thought I'd get in the way of governmental organizations. And then you get there and you see that people in governmental organizations are handing you a baton so that they can get back. They need all hands on deck that they can get, not chaos, but responsible hands who are thinking, how can I be actually productive uh, in this situation? And that one, it was pretty easy. It was, there were, there were people out there on the water, you get a boat, go out, pick people up. But there's so many ways. I mean, you know, the government's never going to get all the water, all the fuel, all the, you know, all these things. We've got to, you know, and, and I wish that there'd be more admission of that. I saw Jen Psaki, who I think is a very, you know, talented spokesperson for the president the other day, saying, you know, that they were sending um, everything that California needed for, to fight the wildfires. Not only are they not sending that, they can't send it. They don't have it because we aren't we are, haven't spent the time as a culture, as a society in preparation for these things. And if we don't do it now, we're really ripping off our kids and their kids. So with Haiti, when that happens and you head down there uh, to help and out of this, I think, is this where CORE began? Yeah. Explain, explain to people what CORE is. And I listed a number of things in the introduction of, of what you've been doing in these 11 years. But So CORE, core was what we morphed into from, we had called it, it was the JP uh, Haitian Relief Organization starting in 2010 in Haiti. The way that built 
is because I had seen this thing I just described in Katrina, where you're not going to be in the way that, you know, and, and we'd had a little bit of disaster response experience, a couple of us from the Katrina trip, we said, let's go. And uh, we landed into a situation I'd never been to Haiti before um, that was so chaotic. And it, it, again, where, you know, we had 22,000 U.S. troops there on a humanitarian mission. And they were, and you, and you had the, at the time the UN peacekeepers, as well as the Haitian National Police and others, and all the NGOs and the UN, uh, and, and none of it was enough to get the job done that needed to be done to, to spare people further death and anguish. And what happened is just by getting in the trenches with young Haitians, they started coming to us and saying, you're, you look like you're here to help our country. We wanna, we wanna help you do that. And so they were able to guide us into what, what later is core community organized relief effort because we found people of lead, who had leadership qualities, who knew the country, knew the community, and were able to give us architecture to what we were doing. Now the US is an entirely Haitian organization in Haiti. It's offshoot into us when we, when we transitioned from it being just Haiti into going to, to other parts of the Caribbean and then ultimately throughout the United States and some other countries. Uh, was going, we went, we had an idea about doing advanced cert trainings. We had an idea that was also in part based on building trust between police and com marginalized communities that had no trust in, in the police because we knew we could get police officers of goodwill, which there are many, many, many who could create relationships of trust with young people in, the, in, in these populations that were uh, otherwise wildly mistrusting and could do it collaboratively to work against climate issues so that hur hurricane, flood, all of these things that were increasingly facing that region. So we went to Savannah, Georgia, and we did a pilot. And we had found a woman down there who had her own grassroots organization. So we didn't reinvent the wheel there. We went and we resourced her and them and, get in, and offered the, the CERT trainings. But there was a deal we were going we to make, which is if you were over eight, if you were 18 or up in that training, because we would train from 14 up, but if you were 18 and up uh, and had taken that training, if a hurricane or whatever event did not hit you, but was within 250 miles of you, you would deploy. Two months later, Hurricane Matthew hit, and we were down in North Carolina, and in came uh, 40 of those cert trained kids on a bus that they had, that they, they had gotten together and came in and started doing muckouts, which it, it doesn't sound very uh, sexy, but if you're down there and your house is, uh, you know, each hour is another chance for terrible mold to grow and, and, and make your house uninhabitable after it's been flooded. And to get these young teams of kids down there going through those muckouts was extraordinary. So that's what CORE is. CORE is we go into these areas. Same thing happened with COVID, with the testing and later the vaccination implementations. 
we we started with the Los Angeles Fire Department out here. We're able to relieve them the burden that they had in doing the testing sites by bringing in young people of, from the community, training them, and and paying them. To, you know, we very quickly got out of the volunteer you know the volunteer business at large in Haiti because we had a lot of volunteers from the United States, and we had all these young people in Haiti who it was better to pay them to do it than it was to just keep having volunteers come and put band-aids on things. So core is that core goes in and organ we're organizers when it comes down to it, where we've got logistics people, we've got, you know, great um, mentors uh, that go in and then we, we you know, they, they build themselves into core. We give them the t-shirt and say, thank you and keep resourcing them. And if people who are listening to this want to help you with uh, this uh, nonprofit disaster relief organization, how can they? How can they do that? Uh, and I'll put it. I'll put it on my podcast page here so that people can click on the link uh, later. Yeah, I think our website is pretty good and gives you a real. We'll give them a real picture of what we do. You know, on this latest earthquake in Haiti. We were deployed out of Port-au-Prince. We had we had heavy equipment deployed on the on the day of the earthquake. We got it we got it up uh, into the southwest. We're real good at surging things like this. Uh, but if uh, they can go to uh, coreresponse.org. So core response, all one word, C O R E response, one word, coreresponse.org, and um, and then they can uh, contribute whatever amount they can. L- listen. But $5 uh, goes a long way when it happens a lot of times. Well, I will go on and I will give more than $5. <laughs> but anybody listening to this, uh, a buck, two bucks, five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever. Um, you know, I've seen uh, the work that Sean has done. There was a documentary made about this called Citizen Pen uh, about all the things that he, uh, you know, he's. I know he gets embarrassed and doesn't, uh, he looks for nothing out of this for himself other than uh, to act in a humble and in a humble way to help others. And Sean, I'm just, uh, it's so amazing. Can we just pivot though, while we're on this idea of disaster to COVID because boy, just listening to the news um, tonight, unbelievable. It's that there are four times today, more cases than there were on this day last September that there are now uh, one out of every four cases are children under the age of uh, 12. This is really bad. And, you know, I've had scientists and doctors on my podcast here, and they have been very blunt about this is now going to be a, a three to four year pandemic because we've got so many unvaccinated people. And And I think the way Fauci put this, that this is a now a pandemic of the unvaccinated and all the tonight they on the news, the nurses in the hospital crying, thinking everybody in here is unvaccinated and they're all dying and they've all given it to other people. And this is so a, a month or two ago on the news, there you are, you are in the middle of shooting a series, I believe the based on Watergate. Why don't tell us exactly what happened on that set uh, because it sent good reverberations across uh, the country. What happened is pretty simple. We had, I had been shooting for a few weeks um, 
and had about nine shooting days to go to complete the work. And a lot of money and effort was being spent on what I considered to be cosmetic protocols, uh, except as it related to what they call zone one, meaning those who come in contact with actors, because if the actors get sick, you're shut down, right? So they, you know, other people they find replaceable. And I don't mean they, the producers, but, but what this machine becomes. And at a certain point, as the Delta variant became more prominent, it, it occurred to me that I was complicit in something that made no sense at all. That in fact, we had all become so inured and so kind of wanting to get out of the fatigue of having to deal with these effing masks and all this, that as long as the cosmetics were there, we were all happy soldiers. And I thought, this is not okay. And there's no reason why everybody here shouldn't be vaccinated. If, you know, right to refuse service and right to the right to... Uh, not hire you if you're not going to do or the right for schools to mandate it. And so I just went to the producers and I said, look, I can't be complicit in this anymore because there are stagehands who want the person next to them vaccinated as much as the actors have the people next to them vaccinated. And, and the problem was not with my producers who were very supportive or my fellow castmates who were very supportive of my decision to walk off until this was resolved. And what the problem was, was some weak leadership in some key unions who were giving in to the fringes within their own organizations. And this kind of, again, the way the culture war gets into it. And we're not able to talk freely and openly and directly and count on science and scientists. And so uh, I, I just stepped out and I'll go back to work um, with an entirely vaccinated crew um, on the last day of this month. Wow. So, so you succeeded, basically, that... Well, it was a small battle one because the way what this means, and I do want to come back to something about the vaccines themselves uh, that, I, that I don't hear enough. Uh, the, the, is a, the, I think my understanding of what's been worked out with those unions or one particular union, I think has a lot of red hats in it, uh, is we will carry all your union members to the, till, till we're done with everything we can do without Sean. And then you're going to let us change them out with your union members who did get vaccinated. And then we'll be good and we'll finish out this production. But that's all, that's all, you know, this achieved. The thing I didn't want to forget to say, and, I, and I'm sure your audience needs to hear at least, but maybe they'll find it important to share with others, is a lot of people still are concerned, and I'm not, so now I'm not talking about radical libertarianism, I'm not talking about the political siding of all of this, but there are still a lot of uh, very good people 
who are concerned that these vaccines came about too quickly. And it's not being said enough that these have been in the works for two decades. This mRNA technology is so docile that it's able to, they were able within days of, of, of identifying the virus to basically come up with the vaccine. Everything after that was testing. So there was actually a, almost a year of testing of something that they knew how to do within days. So these are the safest vaccines we've ever had. And, they've, and, and, it, and, and the amount of research and development that had gone on before this novel virus was extraordinary. And so people should feel very comfortable and safe um, taking these vaccines. I was talking to a family member yesterday and I told this individual the story you just told that they started working on this MNRA uh, uh, vaccine back around 2003 when the SARS epidemic uh, began. And, and this is, like you said, it's almost 20 years of research and coming up with this. And th- this is not some new thing. And also, I, I had, I've told people this week, who said they heard it for the first time from me. And I'm going, oh, no, I'm not the place you should get your news. But, but the people think that this, the, the uh, Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, that they're injecting a piece of COVID into people's arms. That's not true. That's not what MRA is. Just look it up. Google it, whatever. You will, you will, they, it will explain to you how this works. The Googler is, is, is dependent on the algorithm that you've built for yourself. Okay, where, where can I send people to, to read this? Because Well, one thing they can do is they can go back to President Trump when he said, we have really smart people. He was right. We have really smart people. And he trusted them at that time, even if he wasn't being forthcoming about what was really potentially coming with this virus. And, 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 and he trusts them still, which is why he was vaccinated. And, you know, let's just remember where we were before we drank the Kool-Aid. Uh, there, there was a certain level of reason and an understanding of where basic truths are. And people, you, you know, I feel, you know, yes, it's terrible. And it's easy to get angry about how people will infect others. But all of these people who are ending up in the hospital now because they took these positions and now think, God, I wish I'd taken that vaccine. Mm-hmm. Yes. Many of them have said that on camera from their, from their deathbed in the hospital. Yeah, let's get, it. Let's get this thing over with because I'm as tired of it as anybody. Right. None of us want to be wearing these masks. None of us we want to go back to our lives we actually want to make our lives better from what we've learned about our society and how to treat each other. And, you know, I've seen so many acts of kindness during this pandemic. Uh, I think actually we'll be a better people on the other end of this, but let's get to the other end of this. And, and for the people who are afraid, I, man, if I could come there and hold your hand, I would do it. I, I, uh, you know, I, I was worried, you know, I thought, well, before I knew that this about, MNRA, uh, that, that, or M, wait a minute, that's the 
MNRA is the Macho National Rifle Association. MRNA. (laughs) Ribonucleic acid. (laughs) Right. Sean, I think you put it best. I mean, just come on, people, right? Yeah, let's, let's stop being silly. Let's stop being silly. Do you, how, how do you feel about the job President Biden has been doing so far in his first eight months? And, and I, I ask you that again as a citizen, not as a political, you know, Democrat-Republican thing, but just, you know, I'm, I'm just curious. I start with, you know, when, um, when Obama inherited the financial debacle, well, then that's tough. But what Biden inherited in terms of the, the divisiveness and all of the sectors and subjects under which the divisiveness can be uh, defined, we are in a more dangerous time than I remember us to have been in when we had 2,000 bombings a year in the early 70s. I think that there are more than 2,000 hot zones of all kinds of, that, are, that, are, that are of risk right now. And when the temperament of Biden came into the White House, I was as thrilled as one could be under the circumstances. I also thought that he was acknowledging the seriousness of the climate issue more quickly than most had expected he would and more radically. Now, before I go into my feeling about the last couple of weeks, I'll also say that his task force was a breath of fresh air on COVID uh, in, 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 in their initial outing on it, clarifying things finally for people, getting some guidelines, uh, communicating. The, the trip up is that I don't know when it comes to, and now I'm just, you know, to bring it to politics for a moment, on what they, we get too used to calling the left. The aspiration, again, the aspirations of the far left, if anyone listens to them, really listens to them with, you know, with just without politics or labels being in the way. Those are aspirations everyone wants. Strategically, a president today, politically, the media, I don't know if it's always of value for the left to have those, conver- far left to have those conversations with us until they settle on common language with the president. Um, we just, you know, I, I think we get so hung up on winning the wars today and standing out in front of them. This is going to be, you know, this is a long game. And what I think about President Biden uh, is that when I agree with him and when I don't, that at his core is a long gamer. Big mistakes can be made within that, especially in today's explosive world. I saw, you know, this is an extraordinary documentary on, on how we got here and how we got to Kabul um, called The Turning Point. That really clarifies a lot. And the main thing it clarifies is that there was never any clarification. And so for a president of the United States or you or I 
to get caught by the short hairs. I am not really that quick to judge it this fast. Um, there's a, there, you know, we know there's a lot to focus on in terms of Americans uh, and others that still need to be brought out of that country. Um, but I will say this, that in the long game, with all of the mess of that and all of those horrible images we all saw, we have a president who stopped a 20-year war. That's big. And nobody had the balls to do it before. And he knows how much money we spent and how many lives we lost. And he knows the backlash without Kabul would happen. So what I think is that I'm hopeful for tomorrow that he, that he you know, keeps, you know, tacking on onto the, the course and that we help, tack, help him tack there. And, and yeah, and sometimes that's holding the feet to the fire. But I don't think we should do that recklessly or grandstandingly. Right. Um, boy, I, well, I certainly agree with that. And people know who've been listening to me here um, as someone who was out there campaigning with Bernie. Um, and, and I didn't vote for Biden in the Michigan primary. Um, I have been so um, overwhelmed with emotion in terms of what I have seen him do on so many levels some of the smallest things that didn't get any coverage because of all the other horrific things going on that, that he, like, I don't know, a few weeks ago, he uh, eliminated all student debt for any disabled American who holds college debt. Gone. I didn't, I didn't read, I didn't hear it. I didn't see it. I ran across it. I went and checked it. I said, I cannot believe, how come I don't know this? What else has this guy done in these eight months? Because he's been he's had to deal with COVID and and climate and uh, you know all and and a very large number of people that would like to overturn the democracy. At uh, Turning Point, I saw it the other night. All four episodes of it or whatever on Netflix. I'll put a link for people listening to this. Watch this. Watch this documentary. It's brand new. And boy, they really pulled it. Uh, they really pulled it together. Um, so, Sean, just before we go, um, I, you know, I just I thank you for these suggestions uh, and ideas. And I know I, I didn't. I don't want to put you on the spot because I, you know you're the last person that where you want millions of people to come to the altar of Sean Penn for uh, to be our guru and give us advice or whatever. Your actions say it all. You don't really have to say anything. I get it. Millions of people get it. And and I think that that over the years now, and I've known you now for, you know, uh, probably close to 20 uh, and, and various times we've uh, been together and done things. I'll, if I can find the photo from New Year's Eve back in... I've got it on my wall. You got in the wall. You know, yeah, I don't know where my copy. Yeah, this. I can send you a copy. Yeah, we right, so you know already know what I'm going to say. So in New Year's Eve it was 2013, maybe 2014. I don't know, but but uh, so we are all together. You and me, Eddie, Vetter, Bill, Mar, and um, we had we we did this photo of essentially of replicating a famous photo of the four Marx brothers. Um, I won't say anything more than that. I'll, I'll look for the photo. I'll post. I'll post it 
on my site and my uh, so you know what we're talking about. But but Sean, this is the thing. I mean, you know, you're known as a badass, uh, tough guy. Uh, you know, you don't take any shit. You don't suffer fools. These are all compliments, by the way. Um, but uh, but but I know you, and a lot of people know you as a real sweetheart. You are that person that uh, I would want my kids to emulate. The that you you act, uh, you don't get caught up in all the chin music, all the bullshit, the the political, the back and the forth, and what la- what label you are and whatever. You just go and fucking do it. And let me just close by saying this film of yours that I watched this week, Flag Day, and I know your daughter's getting rave uh, yeah. reviews, Dylan Penn, and your son has a a, a role in it uh, too, Hopper. But Sean, in in addition to the beautiful direction of this film, and I didn't catch who the cinematographer was, but the beautiful. Oh, Danny Motor. Danny Motor. Oh, yeah, he's okay. an artist. Well, man, this is a work of art, and your your performance. I mean, I know you. How for you to? I'm sitting there, and 20 minutes into it, I'm not thinking it's you. I'm with this character, this very powerful father, who probably always meant well. As his wife said, he was a a Peter Pan of sorts, but just a a failed Peter Pan. But I teared up a number of times during this film, and I thought about all the people out there who who had well-meaning, perhaps, parents, but they had their own difficulties and their own issues, and and they did their best. They loved their kids. And I, and I you know, I hear from people around Father's Day, they'll, everybody, everybody, oh, my father this and my dad this. And it's like, yeah, well, there are millions who didn't have that experience and and who had a very right. You portrayed this with this this dad who's a mess, a real hot mess of a guy. It's based on a book called The Flim Flam Man. Maybe a lot of you um, read it by Jennifer Vogel. Um, but it you played him with such humanity and love. And um, no matter how much crap he made up or whatever, every moment with his daughter, you knew that in deep in his soul, he had this love for his kids, but couldn't actualize it to the extent where he could do good by them. And yet um, it's, it's Sean, I don't, I, maybe it's just because I just saw it this week. This is one of the best things you've done on film I, as an actor, not the director part as an actor. Well, I, I, I had I had a piece of magic to work off of in uh, Dylan Penn. Uh, she really uh, comes in with no contrivance and so much uh, uh, such a natural force. It's funny when I was listening to you talk about the film and thank you for all those words about the film. I was thinking, you know, for all us flawed parents out there, you know that that will ha- will keep making mistakes. There's one gigantic thing you can do for your kids: go get the effing shot go get the effing shot you know if you feel good about nothing else about how you've raised your kids do do that because your kids want you healthy and they need the example hey any of you listening out there who has if you haven't gotten the shot yet and uh and you decide after this episode damn it i'm gonna go get that shot you know, go get the first one then go get the second but just get that shot um uh snap a selfie of you doing it 
send it to me here on the on the podcast at mike at michaelmore.com and and we'll have our our little uh, honor roll of of photographs of uh I did this I did this for Sean <laughs> and and uh if you don't mind Sean but I just uh, hopefully if you got if you just convinced a dozen people to do it then um we're that much better off you and I have crossed paths so many times in the last 20 years, really, it seems. And I want to share with my listeners, the, um, uh, it was, it was a, the day, I think the day before the Oscars in 2003, and Bowling for Columbine was up for Best Documentary. And I got a call. I think the call came from Tim Robbins. And he said, hey, why don't you, you're, are you probably nervous about the Oscars? You know, they were going to not have them, then have them, because it was, the Iraq war had started just a couple of days before that. And there was a lot of feeling like maybe we shouldn't be doing this uh, right now. But nonetheless, they decided to have them. Then they weren't going to have the documentary category televised. Suffice it to say, there was some concern of what might happen. Um so I get a call from Tim Robbins and he says, Hey, I'm, I'm just, I'm having Sean Penn and a couple people over for lunch here in our hotel uh, suite. Um, if you want to come over and just talk about anything or just, I said, no, I'd love that. He says, yeah. And if you, if you, if you, do you have a speech r- ready? Well, I, I said, I've, I've, I don't know, I've got something, but uh, well, you know, give us the speech. We'll, we'll give you some feedback. I know that sounded great. So I go over to the hotel in West Hollywood. I walk into the room not only is it is Sean there and Tim Robbins, uh, Susan Sarandon is there, Don Cheadle is there, Eddie Vedder is there, Gore Vidal is there. There were others, Sean. I can't remember everybody around that big dining room table, but it was such a kind and caring thing to do for someone who was going to be attending his first Oscar ceremony and might be up for a reaction in case I won. And so I, I told you guys what I was going to say. And then you each, and then I said to you, hey, if you were my shoes, what's the speech you would give? Do you remember this? And then you, you guys went around the table yep. and, and each had a, a very unique idea of what I could say, should I win this? Do you, do you remember this, this whole incident? Very well. Now, do you remember what you suggested that I do? I do. With the exception of the people in that room that day, among our direct and indirect colleagues in the film business, there were very few who were standing up to say anything about that war. And most in private believed the, the weapons of mass destruction lies that had been told by the Bush administration. And so my thought was for uh, time perpetuity uh, with 300 million viewers watching to just ask the audience for, to first say a grateful thank you for the, uh, for the acknowledgement of, of your wonderful uh, film on Columbine. And then to say just, just for time perpetuity, could, could we have everyone in the audience who doesn't stand behind this war stand up and then we would have had a photograph of just how liberal hollywood is when it gets scared to death <laughs> yes I, I remember this i mean i remember thinking when you said that i went 
Oh no. <laughs> this will be the end of me. But it was a great idea. So as people have seen or remember, if they do, if they're old enough to remember, they announced that Bowling for Columbine was the winner, went up on the stage. I had asked the other documentary filmmakers who were nominated to please join me if they'd like to on the stage because I was going to say something. And they all came up with me, uh, all the other nominees. I don't think that had ever happened before uh, at the Oscars. And then I just I just said, you know, we make nonfiction films, but we live in these fictitious times with a fictitious president. And as soon as I went there, boy, the booze started. I thought I should have stuck with Sean's idea. Just just let them st- let them stand. They'd have to boo each other for just sitting in their seats that way. But no, so they started. The booze just got louder. There was a lot of applause, and I've 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 watched the tape since then. You know, Scorsese applauded, and Meryl Streep, and there was nice support. But up in the balconies, where all the tickets go to the sponsors of the Oscar ceremony, that that, that whole thing up there was was pandemonium. And then they lowered the microphone, they struck up the band, and that was the end of me. And and Sean, I went back afterwards, and we went to the governor's ball afterwards. I was shunned by everybody. And an hour later, back at, at the hotel room, first call I got was from you. Because you had you were, I think, on your bike, on your motorcycle, heading back to the Bay Area. Uh, yeah, my, my son and I were on a motorcycle trip. Yeah. Okay, there we go. And... You said to me, is there anything I can do for you? I mean, we'll turn these bikes around right now and come back if you need help or support. And it was the kindest call that could have come in. And I was obviously was, you know, I was pretty rattled. And that night on all the LA TV stations, people out East don't know this, but because the Oscars are, are over out West by, you know, eight o'clock their time. So they have all these like post Super Bowl shows, like post Oscar shows on every channel. And I just kept flipping the dial and every commentator, every critic was saying, well, that's the end of Michael Moore. Uh, I don't know why. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? It's the fifth night of the war. I think it's a badge of honor uh, to, to, to win one when you do work that's uh, as deserving of it as Columbine. And it's an equal badge of honor to be booed there. Uh, you know, when you're making too many people happy, you're, you're doing something wrong. Well, thank you. You said that to me that night and you just said it again. And, and I, I so appreciate it. it. Took me quite a while though, after that, because a few days later, the uh, studio that was going to do my next film ripped up the contract, even though it all signed and they'd even sent the first check and they said, we don't want anything to do with him or this next film that was called, was going to be called Fahrenheit 9-11. So we instantly were all out of work. We didn't know what to do. It was an awful month. And I got back home. I'd had the Oscar. I, I put it in the uh, suitcase, wrapped it up with some, you know, laundry. And we got home and got to the airport. And, the, and that slip that the TSA puts in that says, we've checked your luggage. There was a slip in there. And there was the Oscar completely keyed, all scratched up. Oh, wow. Like destroyed. And that was the beginning of a very difficult year where I had to have a lot of security and whatever. But uh, somebody stepped forward with the money to make Fahrenheit 9-11. And we just went to work. And we, in the next 10 months, we made that movie. So, again, I just wanted to thank you for your support during that difficult and kind of dangerous moment where people were 
wanting to harm me in various ways. So thank you. For that. It, it, easily done with somebody who's been such a leader, you in, you know, citizen uh, informing and citizen activity and all the, you know, important documentaries that you have done, did then and, and continue to do. It means a lot. They're thank you. Big one. All right, Thank man. you, Sean. Great Bless you. Sad. Keep doing what you're doing. And please always feel free to call on me to help in any way uh, and, and the people listening because we're with you and we love you. And uh, as I said, we're a better world because you're in it. So thank you very much. Thank you, man. All right, everybody, Sean Penn. Come back, come back, come back, come back, come back, come back. That was really a great conversation with Sean, and we'll have him back because we, there's so many things we didn't get to cover. Uh, I wanted to ask him about his father, uh, the great Leo Penn, who was a uh, actor, a uh, director back in the 50s and, and 60s and 70s, and he was one of the brave, brave people in Hollywood who, when called to testify in front of the witch hunt hearings in Congress, he would not name names when they asked him who was a communist and who wasn't or whatever. Uh, he just refused to participate in something so undemocratic, so un-American. And he was blacklisted for many years, was not allowed to act, just could not get work. And I didn't have a chance to ask Sean about that, what that was like for him and, and for his family growing up. But next time, we'll do that next time. And my thanks again to Sean for being on Rumble. So on Rumble here, I've been asking you, the listeners, to leave me a voicemail because there's a link right here on my podcast platform page, wherever you're listening to this, there's a link that if you want to leave me a one-minute voicemail, leave it. I'll listen to it. I won't be able to respond, but I, I will. I promise you I will listen. And and I'll pick some of my favorites. Uh, I can't put them all on here. I won't have enough time. But it is time on this episode to bring you once again the people who listen to Rumble and what's on their mind for 60 seconds each. So, first of all, thank you to everybody who's been leaving me a voicemail. Please do that. I do listen to every single one of them. You do it right here, right through the Anchor app. And up next, uh, we're going to turn this segment over to you the listeners, and hear some of your voices. Again, don't forget, all of you have the ability to leave me a 60-second voicemail. I want you to do this. The link is right here on the description page of this episode. We're going to play these incredible voicemails people have left me. Before we do that, one more underwriter I want to thank uh, tonight, and that is ExpressVPN. My crew and I use this whenever we're making a movie we, to keep our work safe. We use this ExpressVPN. I'm sure you've heard of it. One great thing I've, I've learned about ExpressVPN is that, did you know that Netflix has different content available to users depending on where they're located? Netflix has like tens of thousands of shows, but you only get access to a fraction of that. So ExpressVPN lets you and I change our online location so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. Is this legal? Yes, right? Yes. Okay, so as long as this is legal, this is a great reason to have ExpressVPN. So stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of the planet. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash rumble. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn. 
That's express and then VPN, all one word, dot com slash rumble to get an extra three months, three free months of ExpressVPN when you use slash rumble. And also one other underwriter for today, Freshly. Have you heard of Freshly, everybody? This is a meal delivery service that's unlike any others. They deliver fresh, healthy meals to your home or apartment. Trust me, these are not crappy TV dinners. They're fully cooked meals designed by nutritionists and made by real chefs. You get 30 different meal options, meals like steak peppercorn, sausage baked penne, chicken pesto bowl. So you just put it in the microwave, three minutes, boom. One less thing you have to worry about. You've got a great, tasty, healthy meal. And right now, Rumble listeners can try Freshly for just $6.16 per meal. Oh, and also remember, they do meals for just one person. So if you live alone, there's no waste. You're not you know, paying for extra servings. They'll do, they'll do a single serving. All right, my friends, Freshly, thank you for underwriting this episode of Rumble. And thank you for offering our listeners $40 off your first two orders when you go to Freshly.com slash Rumble. Okay, so as I promised, are we ready? Let's turn this episode over to the wonderful people who have been leaving a voicemail on my podcast uh, platforms. I love listening to these. Remember, all you got to do is click the anchor link in the description page for this podcast and leave me a voicemail. And here are some of my favorites from the last month or so. Hi, Michael. Tara Hoffman here from Portland, Oregon. Um, first, I just listened to Chris Hedges and your podcast and just loved it. It's just such a good reminder of just what what, the, what matters and what we're working against. Um, you know, I, I had a, when I was 11, I had this an amazing American Indian teacher who showed us I will fight no more forever in the classroom. And it was my first a realization of what was going on in the U.S. And I've never looked back since and I'm totally fighting for justice and peace for everyone and I think I'm always reminded how there are more of us than there are of them the people that want to oppress and take away people's rights so thank you so much for always having amazing guests always having your heart in the right place and um, just really appreciate you you're a light in the world thanks so much wahoo the war is over why do I feel like I'm celebrating by myself? Certainly I'm not seeing it on the media. Why don't you do a little celebration dance with us all? Thank you. Michael, thank you for doing this. You, I, it's so nice to see someone else that has seen the exact same stuff that I have been seeing all these years. And I'm, I'm so glad you're supporting the president because he needs the support. Second, he sent troops to pull guys out. I sent, I left a message on his um, voicemail saying, thank you for doing this. We need this. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be hearing the same thing. I keep sharing everything with a few different groups because this is all very important stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Michael. This is Lisa Adamson in Lake George, New York. I'm a follower 
our, your podcasts ever since you started a year and a half ago. I think you're in the position of being a real leader and of being able to mobilize people um, into important actions, as you did in your recent podcast on guiding people through how to contact their uh, Congress people uh, in relation to signing the ERA. One thing that's really critical right now is support of the reconciliation bill and getting the word to our legislators that there can be a no-tolerance policy for um, continuing to use, subsidize fossil fuels or for fossil fuel infrastructure. Please find a way to guide people to um, make very important very pointed contact with um, the president and especially with John Kerry in relation to the COP26. Thank you. Ha! Laugh at me. I nearly sent you 45 seconds of silence. This is Arthur from Vancouver again. Once again, just to really appreciate what you're doing, Michael, this last uh, interview, um, sublime madness. Uh, I love it. This guy's been encouraging you since you were a teen and, uh, uh, quoting Daniel Berrigan off the cuff is brilliant. I don't know enough about him, but this thing about faith involving belief that good attracts good. That's something we need. I think somewhere there is where the hope is, not the hopium, but the but the real kind of hope. And I guess I just want to say thanks once again for scraping a little bit of light off your ball and sort of blowing them our way. Reference to Coburn. Isn't that what friends are for? Take care, man. Bye-bye. Don't get flooded now. Hi, Michael. This is Bernard Scoville in Sacramento. Boy, I really like listening to Christopher Hedges. Wow, that's great. Now, uh, I'm not optimistic. This country got very bad habits and a very determined CIA and a Pentagon. But, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing 9-11 again, Fahrenheit 9-11, and, and I'm going to try to get as many people as I can to watch that with me. So uh, thank you, Michael, for what you do. Thank you very much. And I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Wow. Thank you, all of you, for those wonderful messages. It's much appreciated. And again, I've listened to all of them, so people, please uh, leave me one. I, I love, it's a great way to, actually, at the end of the day, just before I go to bed, I listen to these, and they're just, they're wonderful. Don't forget, Friday, September 10th, 9 p.m. Eastern, a free worldwide screening of Fahrenheit 9-11, uh, my 2004 film that is still the largest grossing documentary of all time. It won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, and it pissed off a lot of people in the Bush administration who did some dastardly things to try and stop people from seeing this film. But it did not succeed. They did not succeed. And millions upon millions around the world saw this movie. And with the war in Afghanistan now being lost and uh, over, and a lot of people wondering who we are now and what do we do, this film, man... I'm going to be watching it with you. It's uh, it was a powerful, powerful thing. And I, I hope you join me. So if you're listening to this on Thursday or Friday, it's Friday night, September 10th, 9 p.m., michaelmoore.com. Just go to michaelmoore.com. If you're a Substack uh, subscriber, uh, you know how to go onto your my Substack with you. If you're a podcast listener, uh, all you got to do is go to michaelmoore.com uh, tomorrow night. 
and I will host it. I will do a Q&A with you afterwards, and I will have on some special guests from the film. Uh, so I look forward to doing that. It's how I want to spend uh, the night before uh, the 20th anniversary of this tragedy uh, by having this moment with you so that we can all think about what are the lessons we've learned? Have we learned any lessons? Uh, tell your friends and neighbors and family and whatever to tune in. It's free. It's completely free tomorrow night, Friday night, michaelmoore.com. Much appreciated. Looking forward uh, to talking to you here in the next uh, coming of hours online uh, with my free screening. Thank you, everybody, for joining me. Thank you again, Sean Penn. Thank you to all the underwriters. My thanks to our executive producer, Basil Hamden, our sound engineer and editor, Nick Quaz, who was also assisted today by the great Donald Bornstein. My thanks to Harrison Malkin, who did a lot of the research and helped us uh, with this episode, and to Sean Penn's uh, people uh, there that worked with him that uh, set everything up uh, on his end in L.A. for us uh, today. So thanks to all of you, and we will hopefully see you 9 p.m. Eastern, September 10th, Friday night. That's tomorrow or it's tonight, depending on when you're listening to this. And we'll be able to have a good talk live after the film about where we go now after these last 20 years. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's very, very important. Um, be well, everyone, and we'll talk to you then. Don't be shy. Just let your feelings roll on by. And don't wear fear, or nobody will know you're there. Just lift your head, and let your feelings out instead. No, don't be shy, just let your feelings roll on by, on by, on by.